According to the University of Virginia's Center for Politics, between 6.7 and 9.2 million Americans who backed President Obama in 2012 switched to Trump in 2016. If Joe Biden can win back just some or lose less of the Rust Belt Obama voters who went for Trump in 2016, then it's game over for the president in 2020. And American Bridge 21st Century has a plan to do just that. For more from American Bridge president and co-founder Bradley Baychalk on this episode of The War Room at American Bridge. Welcome back to The War Room at American Bridge podcast. I'm David Brock, co-founder of American Bridge 21st Century. Today, we're going to discuss American Bridge plans to switch Trump 2016 voters to Biden voters in the 2020 election. With me today is Bradley Baychalk, president and co-founder of American Bridge. Welcome to the program, Bradley. Thanks, David. So Bradley, we're just a few days out. And first, I want to know basically just how you're feeling. I'm feeling somewhere between okay and pretty good. Is that is that like justified? Yeah, I feel I feel confident. Um, but I, you know, I think that all of us, you know, I said this the other day. I have a vote Biden had on right this minute, uh, but at different times of the day, it should say PTSD. And I think that you know the sort of the the day to day, you get up in the morning, you maybe look for things that may be uh, a little off. You know, we got through last night, and I think uh, Vice President Biden had a nice debate. And days out, you know, Trump has to really change something, and. We're sort of outside of the normal polling error window uh, of where we are. But look, I would have taken this position that we're in any day of the week of the last four years. Uh, and I think that all of us are just going to have a little anxiety and nervousness. And I think that's warranted uh, for the next right. days. Right. So I wanted to start with a bit of, um, you know, we're going to talk about Bridges program in this last 18 months or so. So I wanted to start with a bit of chronology. Um, we did a strategic plan after the 18 midterm, and it laid out a campaign to identify, reach, and persuade uh, a relatively special, small, but critical segment of the electorate, voters who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump. So my first question is, of all the things we could have done in this election cycle, why did we pick that? Yeah, that's a great, it's a good question. I mean, I think that we sort of landed on, on this for, for one strategic reason, which is I think that we have to acknowledge um, that there's not a piece of v research or one piece of video or one investigative story uh, or one gaffe that is going to take Trump down. And so for us, that feels like that we, we know how to do research and video and communications, but in this case, we had to change our strategy. And so I think the other lesson and strategic imperative we learned is you can't treat him like a traditional politician. So a traditional politician, you know, the race would sort of start over the summer. It would kick off at Labor Day. Um, and, and you'd hope, you know, that it's a sort of barrage at the end and some things fall in line. That doesn't work with Trump. Uh, you can't go at him with a direct blunt instrument. Uh, in, in some cases, that's one of his strengths. He, he can withstand that. And so when we started this project, you know, we aired our first uh, television ad November of 2019 because our strategy was it's going to be death by a thousand cuts. You have to start early in the places that we will still know a year later are at the core of the electoral map, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. I agree, and I think it's a fact that Pennsylvania is the tipping point state. And so if you're going to start early, you, you got to make sure that you nail the, the geography right uh, in terms of it being important. And so I'm very excited that when we started this, we really were going to do three things to, to go after Trump. We were going to go after these white non-college voters, these rural voters that we so didn't talk to in 16. And we wanted to, to do three things to Trump. We wanted to uh, make sure that 
he couldn't consolidate his base, which I think we've done. We wanted to uh, throw a counterpunch to his economic argument. And third, we wanted to make sure that if he was trying to demonize Democrats uh, as they were running, that they, we were there to defend them. And so uh, that's what we started with early, and it's still what we're sort of mostly doing now. So we've been concentrated on the three Rust Belt states, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Um, you just mentioned Pennsylvania. Um, am I right that of those three, that's the one that makes you the little most the most nervous? No doubt. I mean, I think um, it has been sort of interesting to to chart the territory. Over the summer, Trump sort of gave up in Michigan. Um, and then uh, the Senate race got a little closer there with James and Peters. Uh, and, and Trump has started to spend again in Michigan. Uh, Wisconsin, Trump has given up the last two weeks. I think he is running uh, less than $200,000 of media there this week, which is really, as uh, Bill Steffian, I'm sure, knows his campaign manager, the only reason that they're spending $200,000 is so that Trump doesn't read a headline that says Trump pulls out of Michigan and get really angry at Bill Steffian. Uh, and so I think Pennsylvania, uh, obviously it has the most electoral votes, which is is, is a fact. Uh, in, it has 20 electoral votes as opposed to 16 for Michigan and 10 for Wisconsin. But what makes it the most difficult for Democrats um, is that it has more rural areas, but more importantly, uh, the number that scares us a little bit and we should worry about, and that's what our program addresses, is there's 2.2 million white non-college voters that are eligible to vote this cycle that weren't in 2016. And when you think about the red meat that Trump uh, throws out, that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to change the composition of the electorate with people that didn't vote in 16. And Pennsylvania has the highest concentration of those voters. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, let's talk a little bit about our process. We started with a lot of research, polling, focus groups about what the concerns these voters have and what issues might move them off Trump. Um, and of course the, you know, the idea of these Obama Trump voters is somewhat perplexing to people. Um, what, what were the key takeaways from the research? Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's. I can understand how people would be perplexed by Obama Trump voters. I myself am as well. I mean, when you say it, it, it doesn't go together. Uh, and so in these three states, though, the, the math doesn't lie. You know, there were 1.4 million Obama Trump voters in Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin in 2016. Uh, we lost those three states combined by 77,000 votes. And when you boil down who these folks are, they live largely in rural and exurban areas. Number one. Uh, number two, they have an average of two and a half jobs. They're 57 percent female and they think about politics for four minutes a week. And so. These are not people that are uh, getting penetrated. You know, they're hearing about Hunter Biden or they're seeing what the Rudy Giuliani Borat movie says. These are people that's daily life is based in their economic situation. They're working, they're providing for their families, they're, uh, they're in their communities, and they, they vote because they do believe in the democratic process, but they're not the type of folks that, that are watching Fox News or listening to Rush Limbaugh, which was also, I think, um, a fear that we had going in, is that all these people sort of lived in this conservative bubble and we would have to go get them out. Uh, and, and instead, they're just watching local news. We did a lot of research on media consumption. Um, they go on Facebook to check on their family. Their cars are older, so they drive to work. They listen to terrestrial radio so they can get news, traffic, sports, and weather. Uh, and they only consume news at certain times of the day. So I think what we learned, and I have to commend you know, the House Democrats and Speaker Pelosi in 2018, 
is that if you run on local economic issues uh, like dairy prices in Wisconsin or water quality in Michigan or opioid abuse in, uh, in Pennsylvania, or you run on something that everyone listening to this has in common, hopefully, which would be health care or prescription drug prices. That's an economic issue for many of these voters. Uh, that's how they sort of see their life. If, if government or a politician can help solve what their individual economic situation is, not all by itself, they want to work their way out, but certainly they'd like some help with making health care affordable or having a competitive dairy price. Uh, or having clean water. And so that's what we honed in on. And we sort of figured out what are the counties that, that have these issues? How can we then find people that fit that? And that's what the campaign's been based on. So we often talk about this as being a, a kind of a margins game where we're not necessarily trying to, in the 70 plus counties we've been working in, not necessarily flipping those counties, although there's a prospect of flipping some of them, um, but to bring his margin of victory down and bring Biden's up. Um, and that, that can make all the difference in these close races. So um, there are polls that are suggesting that there's movement in Biden's direction among these non-college educated, the exurban and rural voters. Um, what can we tell about what might be moving them in his direction? I think it's mostly that um, these voters, they in 2016, most of the messaging that they consumed and the little time that they paid attention were, was Democrats telling them, look at Trump's latest tweet. Look at what he said about Gold Star families. Look how grotesque his videos are with uh, Access Hollywood. And they all thought, I'm sure, like, oh, I know somebody that lives down the road that is kind of crude, too. Or, you know, uh, I, I, I got a, a family member that also talks like that or something. And it they just let it slide. And so we focused too much on his personality and not enough on his strength. His strength was that he had a successful television show and people, for better or worse, uh, viewed him as a billionaire businessman. And so they thought, well, God, gee, that guy can can help me. Um, and so I think that, that that was really what moved these folks to Trump. And then I think in terms of uh, the margins, white non-college voters, uh, you know, Trump, let's just talk about Pennsylvania, won them by 30 points uh, in 2016. Currently right now uh, in, in our polling or even in the public polling, he's, he's winning them somewhere between 14 and 18 points. If you cut that margin in half uh, based on the composition of the electorate, it's very difficult for Trump to, to get over 50. It's why you see him stuck at 43 and 44. And I would point to a story two weeks ago in the New York Times that said uh, their headline said Trump defectors help Biden build leads in Michigan and Wisconsin. That was the states they polled that day. And they said something that uh, I guess is sort of, uh, you know, no shit stupid, but it says people who have switched sides since 2016 make up less than 4% of registered voters, but they effectively pack twice the punch because they don't vote for Trump and they do vote for Biden. And so even without any other changes in the composition or attitude of voters, that alone is enough to give Biden a comfortable victory in these three battlegrounds. Right. So we talked about the people who are moving toward Biden. Um, but there is this like sliver, I don't know if it's 5%, I saw maybe 3% in Pennsylvania, of people who say they're still on the fence. And I guess some of them probably won't vote. Some of them will. Last time, the, these late breakers went you know, significantly for Trump. What do you think 
could get some of these people off the fence at this point? What's going on with people who don't really have their minds made up? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. I think that I think one of one of the things is probably you said is probably true. They're they're either likely not going to vote, um, or they just they they they're so into this process they kind of want to wait till the last minute. I don't think that this year we are going to see a break of the undecided voters that favors Trump. Uh, I think it's very unlikely. I think that if he, he doesn't, he's you know his closing message is attacking. You know, 60 Minutes, Fox News, uh, depending on the day, his Bill Barr. I mean, these are things that, that aren't really registering with these undecided voters. And he's faced with a time where, you know, this is reality. And as we sit here, uh, you know, October 23rd or that we're here, Trump is 11 days away. COVID is coming back. We had our largest single day of cases in the U.S. history. Um, and for a lot of these voters, whether it's economics or culture or anything else, COVID is the lens that you're seeing it through. And I think that'll make it difficult for Trump to pick up these undecideds. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but I, I'd love to talk to some of these undecided voters because it is very strange. Right. Yeah. So last time there was, um, you know, at, at the very uh, end of the game, there was an October surprise with Jim Comey. And that moved some of these people. Uh, at the end. Um, but it seems like the, um, whatever the October surprises that Trump thinks he has up his sleeve, um, they're falling flat. Um, and so I just wanted to ask you, um, you know, outside the Fox bubble, um, any of this resonating and, you know, they're saying, you know, you're going to see scorched earth in the next 11 days. Uh, what do you think that could look like? And will it have any impact? I don't. I think that, look, I, I think that there's a lot of noise uh, at the end of this campaign. I think uh, in 2016, a, uh, a perfect sequence of mirage of events happened. And Comey was one of them. Russian interference was one of them. Uh, you know, whatever they did with Cambridge Analytica may have been marginally beneficial to them on the margins. And so all these things sort of came together. I think that this cycle, this Hunter Biden thing is just not in the voters' minds. And I think that, you know, you don't have to take it from Democrats. You talk, you listen to the Republicans. I saw uh, Mark Theason of the Bush speechwriter write an op-ed this week saying, Trump, what are you doing with this closing message? You see Frank Luntz yelling after every speech or debate saying, what are you doing talking about these things that don't matter to voters' lives? Um, and so if you can't really penetrate the Twitter bubble or the uh, mainstream media in D.C., it, there's zero chance that you're penetrating Bucks County in Pennsylvania. I think the other thing that uh, we should be thankful for, um, not even as Democrats, just as citizens, is that over 50 million people have already voted. And so it is hard to change the trajectory. I mean, if you look at the averages of where we are nationwide, and I understand that the, the nationwide uh, poll is, is not in, in indicative of the battlegrounds, but if you're down eight, nine, 10 points nationwide and 50 million people have voted, it ain't gonna be good. Uh, and, and that'll be distributed in places that if they're close, you're losing. And so we just gotta keep it up. Right, so um, let's talk a little bit about, we had a very ambitious, uh, ad campaign uh, that you mentioned, um, spent tens of millions of dollars on it in these three states. Uh, and it involved recruiting some of these voters who went for Trump and uh, are not going to vote for him again. Um, tell us how we found the voters uh, and how did we convince them to go on camera? And uh, what was really the point of having these 
um, these local voices. Um, we talk about, you know, creating a permission structure for voters to uh, to move off Trump and and onto Biden. Um, what was all that about? Yeah, I think that um, you know you can learn a lot from other sectors. Uh, you know, if you, if you if you're in the consumer sector and you want to buy a product, you want to see other people that have that product. If you go. You know, I go to my kid's soccer game, I see somebody who has a nice folding chair, and I'm like, oh, gee, I'd love to go get that same chair. I need that. It's okay for me to get that. And that's what we were trying to sort of do with, with these voters, that you can't name and shame them. You can't uh, run typical negative ads against Trump. Uh, you have to find these people. And so to your question about how do you find them, it was harder than we anticipated. Uh, we One thing we uh, got wrong was we, we assumed that it would be easier to find these people. Uh, some of the things that we looked at in 2018, similar type projects talking about healthcare stories, people are much more likely to share a story about uh, their healthcare situation or how they want to see it improved or why their exp uh, prescription drugs are too expensive than they are to film an ad to say, I voted for Trump in 16. I'm not going to again, and here's why. And so I we overshot. And so we had to build, you know, we knocked 80,000 doors. We had to stop in March. Um, and that was based on a universe of people that we had identified that we thought were 80% or more likely to defect from Trump. We knew they were Trump voters. We thought they may leave him based on their 18 voting behavior and a number of other factors. And so we'd go to their door and say, what's going on in your community? Uh, what issues bother you here? Uh, what do you think about politics right now? And you just have to build a longer conversation. And every once in a while, maybe every hundredth door, we have someone that says, sure, you can come in my living room or my backyard and, and I'll tell you about my story. Uh, and so we've been lucky and fortunate enough based on those door knocks, based on people that have already been courageous. If you read your local paper, your letters to the editor, you listen to the radio, maybe you've posted in one of these Facebook groups, um, you may have already raised your hand and said, I voted for Trump and I don't like him and I'm not going to vote for him again. And so immediately what we would do within days when we would find those people is reach out and say, we'd love to give you a canvas to tell your story. Um, and, you know, not always do they... Um, want to be a focus of a media campaign. Not always do they pass our uh, vet. You know, these folks can't have, uh, you know, we had a, a person that we filmed that said he supported Trump in 16 and didn't again, uh, but he couldn't tell us where he was on election day. Come to find out he was in jail. So he did support Trump in 16 and he was going to, he can't vote for Biden. So some of these people you got to weed out. And we've been lucky enough that we found 3,000 courageous people um, that are able to stand up in their community and say, here I am, and it's okay for you to change your mind. And they talk about, I don't regret voting for Trump because it, you learn from your mistakes. And when you do that with local people, and I think that, you know, I'm from South Louisiana, and something cultural will give me a signal that, that you and I are from the same area, a tribe. You know, maybe it's a, a Florida Lee. And so for these folks in a lot of our advertising, they talk about something culturally identifiable, like racing snowmobiles over water in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, or catching pike in the Yellow Creek Lake in Pennsylvania. And that helps us build their credibility ability uh, and then tell their story. Mm -hmm. And what were, I know you have some favorites, what were some of the most compelling stories we found? 
Well, I think that it, number one, anybody that's a, a veteran, you know, we've had uh, some veterans running recently uh, are very powerful messengers because just people are, are uh, more apt to trust them as a messenger. So we have a guy on our website named Jack. Jack has been a really strong uh, messenger for us. And he says that Joe Biden is the first Democrat I'll ever vote for in his life. Um, we have a wonderful woman in Pennsylvania named Janie, who we have uh, on air right now in Pennsylvania and will be until Election Day. Uh, she's told various different stories about how she supported Trump. But right now she's telling a story about her grandson living with her, being 14. And in this ensuing four years, he'll fall in love for the first time. He'll vote for the first time. He'll register for the draft. And that these elections have real consequences to really think about it, to try to make an emotional connection. So, look, we have just these people have been awesome to to. Share share their stories, um, and they face, they face backlash, you know, at their church or at their job or in their home or with their family. And we've been very lucky and fortunate that, that these people have been proud of sharing their story. None of them have backed out of it um, and in some cases have wanted to tell us more. Tell us about the process of testing the ads. We test them before they run, and then there have been some independent assessments um, that have rated the ads as some of the most effective of the cycle. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that, you know, so often in politics, we go off of our gut. Um, and, you know, initially, when we did this media consumption study, we really wanted to get a snapshot of how people consume their information. That was a really deep dive research. And I think on how these ads work, the things that may excite you or me, being uh, staunch Democrats, are not what are going to move voters in these rural areas that may have supported Trump. And so if you go too hard at him, it can backlash. And so we have used uh, probably five to six different testing platforms before we air these ads to see what segment of voters moves, who, does this, who can this backlash from. Uh, you know, if we use local news hooks as opposed to national ones, it usually does better. Uh, we actually, in some of these ads, put a, a text on the screen that says not a paid actor. The, in some cases, we have these folks say, no one's paying me to be here. I just want people to know it's okay to change my mind. We pick that up into the uh, focus group. So what we normally do is do a survey of people in a controlled experiment before we run the ads, and then we can look at the same group of similar people in a different state that don't see the ads. And then you compare what their opinions are of Trump before and after you've run that campaign. So if you consume this advertising, it's moving voters against Trump and now to Biden. If you don't consume it, what we saw late last year, you were more likely to calcify it to Trump. And once you calcify to support him, uh, you know, particularly around the impeachment time, this is a November in December, it's really hard to get you off of there. And we've been fortunate that uh, there's two testing platforms, Open Labs and Civis this year, that have been running all of these ads through their metrics uh, every uh, on a panel uh, nationwide in the battlegrounds. And they've shown that the bridge ads, two camera, real people, not overly negative, have been the most effective contrast ads uh, of the cycle. And you know, we've seen allies, uh, I don't want to say mimic, I guess mimic, uh, it's, it's fine, uh, mimic this style. Biden has mimicked this style with farmers. Uh, Republican voters against Trump have done a great job in suburban areas with uh, digitally with Republican voters. They've also gotten some high profile Trump surrogates. Um, that has been really to, awesome to see that others are picking up on this style and strategy and we're all just sharing our learnings. Mm -hmm. And um at the end of the day, how are we specifically going to measure uh, success? 
Yeah, well, I would start with winning. The least common denominator, the path of least resistance to 270 electoral votes is to hold the Clinton states and to win Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Uh, if we do that, uh, we'll get 279 electoral votes. Trump will get 254. It may be off by one or two, depending on those proportional districts. Um, but it's pretty clear that that is the most likely path to getting back power. I think the second way to test if this worked is you can look at the results of 2012, 16, and 18 with this sector of voters, and we'll be able to see how we did. I mean, we built this strategy off of 2018 success uh, by winning house seats in places that we never thought we would in rural and exurban areas, and by not chasing the Trump you know, daily car crash and really just trying to figure out how can we zone in on these economic issues and do it a long way over time in a soft manner. Look, I, I feel pretty confident that if a year ago you would have told me that the best academic research would say that 9 to 12 percent of Trump voters are going to vote for Biden, we'd all be like, you are nuts. Uh, but it, it seems that that is very likely the case, if not more. And if you lose 12% of your voters in, in as close of an election as we had in 2016, more importantly, in the places that matter, uh, you, you're in for a rough night. So hopefully, we, like Joe Biden says, we beat them like a drum. So super PACs can't coordinate with campaigns. Uh, but talk a little bit about how uh, the work of outside groups and bridge um, helped the Biden campaign. Yeah, so I think we, you know, we have to figure out what lane it is, how you can take something off of their plate. A campaign has so many things they have to focus on every day. They have to do a schedule, a field program, voter protection, voter registration, uh, message. They've got uh, thousands of staff, uh, and it's just a lot. And so for us, our goal uh, at Bridge, and then I'll talk about other groups, was to say, you know what, there's 40 million Democrats running for president uh, in November of the off year. Let's go right at Trump in the heart of the battlegrounds. Let's erode his financial advantage. I like to say let's take Mike Tyson's advice, uh, who was a, a great political strategist in some ways. He would say everybody has a plan until you punch him in the mouth. And so in November, we started to hit Trump with these local people. Uh, and over time, we saw them moving our way. And so for us, what the Biden campaign, you know, in the last 90 days can see is that we have been spending consistently in these three states, in these markets with this demographic, and they can marshal their resources for expansion of the electorate. And that's why they can say, let's go spend money in Arizona or North Carolina or Florida or Iowa or Ohio or Texas uh, or any of these places that are all jump balls. And so the independent groups, us and others that we work with, our job is to be clear on what our mission is, to be consistent with it, so that the Biden folks can know that we have these lanes or these geographic areas or these demographics covered. Um, and we work with over 20 allied groups this year that are doing similar projects. Some are focused on base votes. Some are focused on suburban women. Um, and that, that makes dollars go further. And then I will just say, you know, in closing, when you think about how quickly the um, the battleground of money or uh, electoral votes can change. When, when uh, Mayor Bloomberg decided to spend $100 million in Florida, what that did was enable the Biden campaign to spend $100 million anywhere else. And what it also did, just like if you move a, a Trump voter to Biden, it 
Trump then had to go spend his money, which he had less of, in Florida. Because if he loses Florida, it's over. If he loses Pennsylvania, it's over. If he loses Texas, it's over. If he loses Georgia, it's over. We need to make as many of these do-or-die states as we can for Trump. And instead of relying on one map. And I think that's the role of outside groups, is to help make that map and those scenarios wider. Right. So... I want to just talk a little bit about um, this was a, a big, this swing state project was a big expansion for bridge in terms of our operations and our infrastructure. Um, talk a little bit about the team you had to assemble to, to pull this off. Yeah. So we, we basically decided that instead of trying to put together an updated research book on Donald Trump, that was 20,000 pages long. Uh, we really just wanted to look at 80 counties in these three States that we thought were either Obama Trump counties or look like them. So we actually simplified things. We sort of condensed it so that we wouldn't have to uh, chase everything under the sun that, that it relates to Trump. Uh, number two, I think something we did different is we wanted to really get a snapshot of how these folks consume their information. They're very different. They live in uh, in more rural areas, and we spent a lot of time both uh, doing focus groups and polls in home uh, discussions about what they spend their day, how they get their media diet, and I think that was important for us to do. And so. After figuring those sort of two things out, we were able to really put a team of folks together that were very nimble, very aggressive. I, I, you know, we had to hire field folks on the ground. We, instead of having traditional trackers at American Bridge, we put people in states that go to Republican events and film local rotary clubs or fundraisers or campaign speeches. In this case, we were sort of putting outreach coordinators on the ground to talk to local groups, to go knock doors, to find anyone and everyone that they can. You know, it's really a needle in a haystack to find someone that would be willing to go on television and talk about this. So the initial piece was a lot of research. Uh, then a lot of people, then a lot of uh, door knocking or legwork. And then since then, it's just continuing to feed these people in and then us sharing their stories with folks. And what you have to do, look, you got to be nimble. I mean, I think that's one thing that's important in this whole project. When COVID hit, you can't knock doors anymore. We're filming ads via Zoom because no one's going to let us into their house. Uh, And the issues that we're talking about aren't what we were talking about in November. Uh, You know, you're now talking about uh, something that's economic in nature, but everything is through a COVID lens. And so I think that made this, uh, that made Trump, made it more difficult for him because his superpower is to distract us. You know, he makes us forget that 15 gajillion people that worked for him are either under indictment or went to prison or that he did this corrupt thing that day or said this corrupt, did this, uh, said this crazy thing. When COVID happened, everybody's at home. Everybody's looking through the same glass. Uh, people have either experienced loss of a loved one, as Biden talked about in the debate this week. They may have lost their job or their health care. They may not be able to see their grandchildren. Everyone has a different pain point, in a way, from this. And I think uh, at the end of the day, as good of a politician or as good as campaigns as you can run, voters are smarter than we give them credit for. And they realize when they watch Trump and see Trump that normally he doesn't tell the truth. The Washington Post says it's now over 25,000 lies. And so on COVID, he had no credibility. He didn't follow the facts and we didn't have a plan. And ultimately, the buck's got to stop with someone. And for a guy that made his career, you know, in a boardroom uh, saying you're fired, the buck stopped with him. And I think voters see that. Absolutely. So we have a few more minutes. Um, I think we really covered our swing state project very well. Um, talk a little bit about our Senate work. It's so important that 
we get back the Senate majority and not only uh, elect Biden. Um, and we do uh, a lot of research in these Senate races um, and we disseminate that research very aggressively. Where do you, where do you think we've uh, made some impact? Yeah, look, I, I think that to build Democratic electoral power back, you can't put all of your eggs in the presidential basket. I think we've seen that. I think um, it's great that we got back the House in, in 2018. It's been encouraging that we won back a lot of these state legislative seats since 2016. I'd encourage people to continue to invest in the DLCC uh, and other organizations that are doing the state ledge work. Uh, I think on the Senate, we, you know, this looked like a really difficult map, and now we have some real opportunities. Um, and so our job in this is to either do the research or the video. So on the research end, if we find that David Perdue in Georgia uh, got a COVID briefing and then, you know, a day later went and bought uh, pharmaceutical stocks or PPE company stocks, then we're going to give that information to local media or we're going to make it public. Uh, that's the sort of way we can't coordinate with campaigns. So for that information to get out, we need earned media or we can just post it on our website. In that case, you've seen that used against him. It's on air right now in Georgia, beating him over the head. In Iowa with Joni Ernst, another race that I think is probably one of the closest in the country. Uh, we attended a, a town hall she did a year ago, uh, uh, filmed her saying that uh, she would be happy to address solving Social Security, but would need to do it behind closed doors. So sort of suggesting that um, she'd be open to cutting it, but she didn't want to talk about it in public. Uh, we've used that comment over and over and over again. In Maine with Susan Collins, uh, we pieced together that her husband is a lobbying business that is very closely intertwined with her committee assignments, and we've been able to make that argument. So we've done this over and over again in these races. Um, and, you know, the, the video or the research can really take a life of its own. And look, as we sit here today, it, hopefully we can get to 51, 52, maybe 53 Senate seats. I think... Um, Georgia is a very interesting state, and of as we sit here today, I think Georgia is probably the most interesting electoral battleground in the country uh, because it's a 50-50 toss-up that, uh, that Biden could win it, and we could win either or both of those Senate seats uh, in a state that we haven't won on that level in a long, long time. Right. So if Biden wins, um, why? Number one, they've run a good campaign. Number two, Trump has failed. He's failed the country, and Biden has provided a contrast and a vision. And I think that this country has had enough of the volatility, um, the the aggression, the uh, the uncontrollable nature of Trump. And they they thought that they maybe want to give him a chance, and they realized that all this volatility can cause a lot of chaos in your family, in your life, in your society, uh, in communities. I mean, when you look at the racial unrest in this country, everything Trump touches, he brings up the temperature a few degrees. And that can't be a good thing. It's not a good thing in, for your blood pressure. It's not a good thing for your local community. And so I think Biden is able to say, I'm very experienced. I have some plans to address this. You know who I am. Uh, I, I couldn't be more prepared for this moment. And just come join me so that we can turn the corner. Um, and I think that as he makes that, that argument to people, they're coming over his way. And I think from Trump's case, he's just not going to get the benefit of the doubt. No one thinks that he's going to change his stripes. And so 
I think if, you know, in, in less than two weeks, if Biden's successful, uh, it, it will be because Trump has failed our country and because Biden has provided an economic vision to say, this is what it will look like under Biden presidency. This is what change will look like. And, and we're here and ready to deliver it. And I think no one has confidence that anything will change with Trump, uh, that he'll ever change his stripes or that he's ever going to have a path that's just a one of unity for the country. I thought Biden's best line in the debate this week uh, was, I'm running as a proud Democrat, but I'm going to be America's president. I want to be a united president. And I think that that is the, you have to meet the, the electorate where the moment is. And Biden is, um, he actually is genuinely exactly sort of what the, the, the moment and the emotion of the country is. And they fit well together. And Trump is the exact opposite. And I think that's why he's in a, a pickle now. But we can't give up. We, I think Demo- Democrats better run through this, this race tape. I mean, you got to get through. Uh, there are a lot of things that can happen. There are a lot of things that Trump and them are trying to throw up. Every day you wake up in the morning, there's some new legal challenge they're going after. And, uh, you know, you, to, the, you have to follow what Mark Elias and Democracy Docket, who I know is on the podcast, are doing. I mean, we are fighting every day to make sure that we have a free and fair election. Uh, and if we do count all the votes and people are able to vote, I feel really confident that we'll be on the winning side of this equation. So I, I don't really want to, but I have to ask the flip side of the question, and God forbid if Trump wins, why? <laughs> <laughs> I think if Trump wins, it's um, I think maybe two things have to happen. Number one, you have to see a polling error that is as large uh, that's larger than what we saw in 2016. The main reason with the polling in 2016, uh, which got better at 18, was that we weren't weighting college versus uh, non-college with white voters. Uh, If you look at where we are today, uh, based on the battleground states, if you took the same polling error from 2016 and and assumed that nothing got better, that none of these pollsters have have learned anything, the media pollsters or private, uh, Biden would win with 280 electoral votes. Now, that only leaves you a 10-point margin, a 10-point cushion. So I think for Trump to win, uh, one thing he could do is to, one thing could happen is polls could be more wrong than 2016. I don't think that's the case, but that's one scenario. I think the second scenario is this could end up being a closer election than we think. And I think this race will tighten. People shouldn't expect, you know, that we're going to get over 400 electoral votes. And if that's the case, what Trump's trying to sow is uh, erode the confidence in our democratic system. And when you see today the New York Times report that uh, Russia is looking into uh, Russia has infiltrated some of our election systems, much more uh, critical or much more dangerous than what Iran's doing. Uh, so it would have to be a conglomeration of Trump eroding trust in our process, some sort of foreign actor, and then that big old toad in the uh, attorney general's office, Bill Barr, immediately coming behind and doing something that we don't expect or know and trying to get back in Trump's good graces. So I think that those are sort of the two scenarios that, that make me uh, scared. The third would be that there's a a larger turnout of those white non-college voters than any of us are expecting. Um, those are probably the three scenarios where we could end up on the bad side of this coin. Right. So uh, how are you going to be spending election night? Well, election night, it would be different. I'm uh, usually um, in our office with all of our staff and um, – it's we've had one good election night in 2012 and one awful one in 2016. So this year, um, you know, obviously with COVID, we're going to be doing something a little different. I'll be in Virginia with some friends and family and work colleagues, uh, with my kids and my wife, 
sort of uh, taking a, a little time away from the office, and, and that's what we're going to be doing. So we'll watch some election returns. Unfortunately, this year it won't be with all of our team uh, and all of our, our work friends, but um, hopefully we'll get to celebrate you know, virtually here pretty soon. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's hope so. Bradley, thanks so much for joining us today. We look forward to having you on again. For more information on American Bridge, check out AmericanBridgePack.org. Check back for more podcasts and information about the upcoming election and how we plan to hold Republicans accountable. Until next time, I'm David Brock. Thanks for listening to The War Room at American Bridge.